All right. We're going to do a little countdown recap. Yeah. I do want the recap. But we're going to do a countdown style since, you know, it's New Year's. New Year's Eve. All right. Number 17. <laughs> That's where we're starting. Cornerstone. That's where we started, right? Jesus as, as the chief cornerstone. He is the chief cornerstone, the starting place for everything. And he's the one that put what in our hands? We've been doing this for a few weeks now. The everlasting kingdom. Jesus is the one who placed the everlasting kingdom in our hands. He's given it us, given it to us to steward. Number 16 is camp life. I was all about being in the wilderness. We looked at the rebellions in the book of Numbers and focused in on those. And we, we looked at how those can hold up a mirror for us to see our own rebellions and, uh, and really examining those things and ultimately coming to see that we need to remember what it is that God's done for us, who it is that God has shown up for us as, and the fact that we need to rely on him for everything, for absolutely everything. The Israelites relied on him in the wilderness for food, for water, for protection, when to go, when to stop, where to set up camp, for everything. And, and we need to take on that posture as well. Number 15, tabernacle. God wanted to dwell and be with his people. And so he made a way for that. And that was in the form of the tabernacle. This was a place for his spirit to dwell. And, and that was just the beginning because we know that through Jesus, he has made a way for God's spirit to dwell in us. We have become the tabernacle in the new covenant. We are now the dwelling place for the spirit of the Most High God. Number 14, priestly anointing. Christ's priesthood, it, it created a new class of royal priests. We know that in the Old Testament, Israel was called a royal priesthood. Now the title of royal priesthood is reapplied to the church. That's us, right? It's reapplied to us. We are now a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Number 13, servant and son. That was the topic. We looked at the servant of the Lord, Jesus. We looked at how he showed up to serve, not to be served. And he did so as a son, which means he came in authority. His act of service, it's what allowed us to be brought back into the family, brought into sonship. That means that no matter what the mission is that God has given us, we are to do so as a servant. We show up in the authority and power of a son. Number 12, altar and offering. We looked at, at this to be able to understand what Jesus did for us as the ultimate and final offering that atoned for sins and, and made way for us to enter into the presence of God without fear. Right? If you remember in the tabernacle, the high priest was the one who was allowed into the Holy of Holies, but once a year. He had to 
make sacrifice for his own sins first before being able to go in and sacrifice on behalf of the people, to be able to make offering on behalf of the people. Well, Jesus, uh, as the ultimate high priest, made way for us to do that, but at any time, any point, and we can do so without fear. Because they, we know that the high priest, it was a fearful thing because if they didn't do their sacrifice right for themselves, they could go into the Holy of Holies and they done. I can't do it again. You only got that once. Number 11 was praise. This was, this was all about being after the heart of God and being one who is called one after God's own, God's own heart, just like David was. This is the, the mark of those who make their life a life of praise, being called one after God's own heart. The great questions, again, I hope you've captured these and are, are answering them often. What choice will I make in the middle of opposition? Am I going to praise or am I going to shrink back? You have to know your response. You have to know how you're going to respond in the face of opposition before opposition comes at you. Before it happens, know what it is that you're going to do. Also, what am I doing with my praise? Where am I placing worth? We've talked about this numerous times. What is it that I'm giving praise to? What is it that I'm worshiping? Because we are always worshiping something. We are always offering worth to something. And so we have to be intentional about what it is that we are offering praise to. All right, number 10, worship. This is looking at, at how we must exalt God to the point where, where we become small, or, or rather next to the fullness and holiness of God, we are going to feel small. I mean, it's just the, the nature of this. It, it's, it, it should be something that causes us to, to have a little bit of, of awe and wonder when we stand next to the fullness and holiness of God. It's going to make you feel small. And then there, we looked at the question, can you measure the standard of worship by feeling God? I mean, this is, this is one of those questions that um, I am asking myself when we are in the middle of, of worshiping, in whatever form that is, whether it's uh, decorating Christmas cookies or uh, playing music and singing, am I measuring what the standard of this is by how I'm feeling? By, by my ability to feel God? Am I getting the goosebumps? Am, am I somehow feeling connected to the song? That's not what it's about. That's not what worship is about. Worship is a sacrifice, and we know that this is the burning of flesh. A sacrifice in the Old Testament was a burning of flesh, which means you are offering yourself to God. And doing so as a living sacrifice. Questions from that uh, teaching were, is my source of what Jesus is doing coming from today or the past? We always need to be connecting with where Jesus is taking us and not relying on what he has done in the past. Because if we're living in old wineskins, we're going to be missing out on the new that he has for us. Another question from that was, am I up for great sacrifice? 
am I up for, uh, up to be a continually living sacrifice? This is, this is, can be a difficult question to answer. And, and it can be a difficult question to answer honestly, I should say. Because it's easy for us to, in the group, say, oh yeah, I'm up for it. But then you gotta actually get out of bed the next day. You gotta actually take time to pray. Take time to, to read and study scripture. Take time to sit after those things and listen to what it is the Holy Spirit's saying. That's all part of being a living sacrifice. And then you have to get dressed. Make sure Holy Spirit's ordered your day and then follow through with those things. Actually go out into the world. We also looked at, at the fact that God wants a pure and spotless sacrifice. Are you going to give him what he's worthy of? Will you give him your absolute best? Number nine, prayer. We talked about the basis of our approach to God in prayer isn't just simply about us looking for God. This was God making a way through covenant for us to be able to do this, for us to be able to enter into prayer, for us to be able to talk to him, to communicate and have that back and forth conversation. It is an opportunity through his gracious initiative for us to be able to bring petitions to him. We have things that are on our mind and we know we're not supposed to worry, but what happens? We wind up worrying about things, right? So this is the point where we have opportunity to take that to God, lay it before him, and then do what? Shut up about it and let him take care of it, right? Once we have prayed, once we have offered blessing over something, we let him take care of it from there. In this, we want to, we want to keep oneness in mind. We want to be selfless and not selfish. We need to be turning our, our attention and passion towards oneness in prayer. Number eight, the Spirit of the Lord. This is where we got into the seven spirits of God and the first one being the Spirit of the Lord. And we looked at this is the point where the Spirit of the Lord, uh, um, talking about the, the, the Messianic figure that they uh, were, were the Israelites were looking for. And in Isaiah 11.1, 1, this is the, the shoot that is coming from the stump of Jesse. And then it starts to describe him in, in uh, verse 2. And that first one being the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. And this was a permanent thing. This was a permanent resting. Not what we knew as the typical Old Testament resting of the Spirit on somebody for a particular task or for a period of time if they were a king uh, or a prophet, um, this was permanent. It was not going to go away. This is also where we looked at Jesus quoting uh, in, in Luke chapter 4. Jesus was in his hometown. He went into the synagogue and he got up to read and he read Isaiah 61, verse 1, and the start of verse 2. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped there, he rolled up the scroll, and he sat down, and he told all of them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's it's a wonderful thing to know that the Spirit of the Lord resting permanently upon Jesus is something that is transferred to us. All of these things he talked about being fulfilled in their hearing. Now, as we are those who carry out the gospel, this is what's being offered through the gospel that you share when you share Jesus. So he claimed uh, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you know the rest of Isaiah 61 too, after it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, it also says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. He stopped though at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's favor that's extended over us. He came to set us free from all of those things that would keep us from him, that would keep us uh, uh, sensing separation there. So there's no separation between us and God, no sense of distance. All right, number seven, the spirit of wisdom. We know that purely human wisdom has no merit on its own. Isaiah 29:14 says therefore behold I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden So the wisdom of God is is being revealed now through us through the church Ephesians 3:10 says so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that means it's not just purely human wisdom, not our own logic that we can conjure up and, and say, oh, look at, you know, I know all this stuff. I'm smart. Yay. No. Wisdom is rooted and grounded in God. True and spiritual wisdom, it's God's gift for us. And that's something we need to keep in mind. Number six, the spirit of understanding. We talked about wisdom. And, and we looked at that kind of flow to get there. You know, you start to, in, in a human sense, we take in data, we start to put that stuff together, and eventually we get to wisdom. Well, if, if wisdom is from God, this understanding helps us get beyond those wise choices that we make. We get to wisdom, we are able to make decisions. Now being able to see beyond those, what does it look like beyond that? Beyond the wise decision, we can walk these things out and have understanding of what is coming. Have understanding of what it is that God's doing. We know the final test of understanding. If we are looking at these things and able to walk them out and say, okay, I can see what God is doing with us. I can see where he's taking us. I have understanding of this thing. The final test of that is obedience, is being obedient to God. You can see that he's taking you somewhere, and maybe it looks difficult, but you're still going to be obedient. 
Number five, the spirit of counsel. Spirit of counsel is going to be there to help with, with making plans, with laying out purposes, and, and aiding in that decision-making process. This is a point for us to be able to, to talk to Holy Spirit and ask for counsel. But this is something where we have to sit and listen. We have to exercise a bit of discipline to be able to stop and say, what is it you're saying, God? What is it you're telling me? How are you counseling me here? We also looked at the, the counsel we're giving and taking in and, and knowing that it needs to be saturated in the Holy Spirit. It needs to be saturated in the spirit of counsel when we are uh, talking with one another. Number four, spirit of might. We looked at the Hebrew word for this, and there was a lot of different definitions, and the first one being power, and that's the one you find a lot throughout Scripture is power when it comes to uh, discussing might. And we, we looked at putting all of that together. We looked at the full picture and weight of the spirit of might that was uh, ascribed to Jesus in Isaiah 11.2. And really... This is uh, um, what is, is given to us as well because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. One of the, the key pieces in this was remembering that physical strength needs to be coupled with inner strength because that's going to allow us to have courage in, in all kinds of situations. And, and we talked briefly about Samson, how he had great physical strength but his inner strength was weak, very weak. So external strength has to be coupled with the even more powerful inner strength. And we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is fighting through what is happening and wanting to make it to the cross, but there is, there is a struggle going on to the point of sweating blood. That is, that is a serious struggle there. His inner strength allowed him to say, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That is, that is an inner strength right there. In the face of sorrow, even to death, that should be our declaration as well. Not as I will, but as you will, God. Number three. Huh? Oh, not that one. Spirit of knowledge. Spirit of knowledge, we looked at the connection between knowledge and relationship. Focusing closely on the fact that the spirit of knowledge is about, is, is about co connecting relationally rather than uh, uh, through a mind knowledge. It's, it's a heart knowledge. It's a heart connection. And full knowledge is only possible through Jesus. Our knowledge of Jesus is, is the perception of him as, as the revelation of God. And that leads to relationship and obedience. It doesn't lead to a, a head full of knowledge. It lead, leads to a heart full of knowledge. It's, it's really about that connection right there. It's about your intimate relationship with Jesus. And that gives you knowledge of him. And number two, fear the Lord. We broke this down into an English uh, 
equivalent from the Hebrew and Greek that uh, that gave us a real description of what is talked about uh, or what should be defined as the fear of the Lord in Isaiah 11:2. And that was a profound mixture of awe, reverence, and respect for God, coupled with a deep-seated willingness to obey His commands and live in accordance with His will. This fear is not driven by terror or apprehension, but by a deep sense of trust, humility, and a desire to please God. So that definition, it really captures the positive and transformative nature of fearing God. It's not about cowering uh, before Him. It's about embracing a, a reverence and obedience that leads to righteousness and, and joy. We also looked at, at 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Uh, the verse has uh, uh, been used to say that Christ ushered in perfect love and grace uh, over over us through what he did and accomplished on the cross. And that means fear is not a thing for the believer in any capacity. That is, that is used in some cases. And yes, it's true. Uh, that we have access to perfect love, we have access to grace, but the context uh, being used by some is that fear has cast out, uh, that that casting out of fear is is complete. And it, in, in a sense, what, what is happening is that leads believers away from reverence and away from awe and from posturing in worship because Jesus is worthy, right? Yeah? So ultimately, it leads us away from fear as we defined it. If we looked at the, the fullness of that verse, 1 John four eighteen, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So that argument about this verse casting out all fear to include fear of the Lord is is errant. The use of fear here has nothing to do with the definition uh, that we're working with, that we talked about, and nothing to do with its usage in Isaiah 11:2. Jesus wasn't fearing punishment. His expectation, his delight was reverence and awe. So yes, perfect love casts out fear. However, it casts out fear of punishment, right? Yes. We also looked at Proverbs 1.7 and Proverbs 9.10. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of you connecting with God in intimate heart knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of you connecting with the wisdom the understanding, the counsel, and the might of God. The Spirit of the Lord is resting permanently within you because you believe in Jesus as the Savior, the one true way to the Father, right? The fear of Yahweh is, is to stand in a, a subservient position to Him, to acknowledge your dependence on Him. And just as the Israelites did in the wilderness, like we just talked about, here to rely on God for everything. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And, and if you remember back to last week, beginning, it, 
it not only has a sense of first, but it's also the foundation. It also brings us uh, uh, thoughts of being a source. So the fear of the Lord is the source that brings us into intimate relationship with God. The fear of the Lord is the source that brings us into his wisdom, his understanding, his counsel, his might. It's the foundation that sets us in the right posture before God, with the right attitude for God, the right response. So we can't let fear of the Lord be something that we reject because our common definition of fear, that common definition that we hold that makes us think about anxiety and apprehension, that common definition that's just low level. We need to be thinking about this a little bit more deeply. And we can't let the fear of the Lord be something uh, we reject because of a bad theological stance that's taken and offered that says that just because perfect love casts out fear, that it casts out the fear of the Lord as well. That's not what it's talking about. Fear is a virtue that leads to, to us being humble. It leads us to praise and humility. Since the one who fears God recognizes that God, not himself, is the center of the universe, right? God is. We need the fear of the Lord to live fully yielded to God. Number one. Behold the Lamb, and that's where we are going today. But not not for me. So I'm going to say bye. Yes, well done. Seriously, like, seriously, you guys, he spent the last, um, what was it, 17 weeks, um, putting a lot into this series. And here we are. Here we are. Who would have thought that 18 weeks would have gone by this fast? <laughs> it didn't feel like it four weeks in. I understand. <laughs> but here we are. And today is, is the end of a series and the beginning of a new one because we are mashing up the foundation series with the beginning of the series of Acts. And we have 28 weeks. So if you thought 18 weeks was long, hold on. Because um, we're in for a 28-week series, which will take us right up to the conference in July. And so that's really exciting. And I, I really feel like God is, is being very intentional with us concerning all things. And how many of you are thankful for the intentionality of the Father? I mean, seriously, I am so thankful that he is being this intentional with us and giving us Every step. I mean, seriously, if we're willing to listen, every step. And I want to highlight one of the scriptures that, that the worship team read this morning. How many of you love that? How many of you love that? Yes, we need agreement in the house of the Lord today. <laughs> um, Psalm 23, and I know that it's so familiar to all of us because the majority of us whether we were raised in the church or not, grandma had the blanket. Am I right? <laughs> Psalm 23 is well known, but it's the very end that I think we skim over because of the guts in the beginning and the middle section. But the Lord will prepare a table for me before my enemies. 
the only thing left to do is consume what it is that he's preparing for us. And I think too often we disregard what it is the Lord has prepared for us to consume, to eat. I'm not talking about consumerism. I'm talking about eating. Eating what the Lord has placed before us, before our enemies. And I think too often we leave the table because we're afraid of the enemy, which is the wrong fear. The fear of the Lord dictates we stay and eat. But the fear of the enemy so often wins because we've not rightly regarded the right source. If he wants to feed us before our enemies, who am I to And here's the problem, is that when we do not stay and eat, that leaves our portion, our meal, open for any squatter to come along and sit on our sustenance. And this is where we found ourselves. This is where compromise has gotten us. Because we refuse to eat what he has provided, we've given up our position. And it's very simple. We took our eyes off of the cartridge machine. We had our own little cover. It just was fitting. It was fitting. We didn't catch on until five golden years. <laughs> I this this series has truly been foundational. There were there were parts of what Vince brought to our attention that I either didn't know or I need to be reminded of. Really drew my attention to the areas that we have so easily compromised in. Drew my attention to what the expectation of the Lord was on the, the, the people who lived within the stories of the Old Testament, right? We would call that Old Covenant people. And we've dismissed those ways because we live under a new covenant. It's the same God. And we have allowed ourselves a margin of grace that takes us off the grid of what the Lord has intended for us. We've used grace as an excuse to sin, which is the very thing Paul said grace wouldn't do. It's not a license to sin. It's freedom from sin. That Christ came to overcome sin. He took on our shame. Do you know the Bible actually says that he was unrecognizable? And we're talking about God who became man. becomes unrecognizable as a man because of humanity's sin. And there is not much about him, Isaiah tells us, that we would even look at him. We would even be attracted to him as a man. And I think we still treat the Lord in the same manner. 
because it doesn't measure up to what we are trying to gain for earthly pleasures, we're not attracted to it. Because he's humble. And he's not flashy and shiny like the things that have our attention on the one simple thing that will keep us at the tables if we keep our eyes locked on the lamb. It's all about the lamb or it's not. I think we like to have our cake and eat it too. We want to have our seat at the table, but we want to be picky about what we eat. Suddenly I don't like roast. But you know what I'm saying. We treat the meal as if it's optional. And it's not. It's not optional. Stephanie Gretzinger says, we eat the whole lamb, bitters and all. The whole lamb. This whole mentality of, yes, but that's old covenant. So I'm just going to stay over here in my lane in this grace lane and disregard the rest. It's gotten us in trouble. It's gotten us into compromise because we've disregarded who he is in fullness. And I get it. I've lived it. I've lived it. I've lived this, this life of believing that he said it's finished, therefore, I'm just going to exist. Anybody? Yeah. This was actually a lot of our existence for the last 10 plus years. And I think it was for a purpose. I am not shaming us in any way for buying into the grace message because it's painful and it is lost. But without fullness of who God is, we are going to miss out on the reason why we need grace. So let's go to Luke to start this off. We would be amiss not to start at the very end of Luke to dive into Acts. Same author, in case you were wondering. The Gospel of Luke is written by Luke and Acts is also written by Luke. We are going to start in Luke chapter 24. Um, starting in verse 36. What you need to know up to this point is that Jesus has been resurrected. We, we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school about the, the, the minds of the disciples and where they had to be in, in, in the whole scheme of things that have taken place. I mean, if Pentecost wasn't a whirlwind, this is, right? Like, they're, they're emotionally distraught because the man they followed and believed would come 
as, you know, this great conqueror, Rambo Jesus, didn't fulfill the outcome that they searched. And so their world is being completely, like, blown apart. Not only does Jesus die, and three days later, he does what? He rises. Can you imagine? They're like, let's not just skip past this. I understand. This is common knowledge. We all know that Jesus rose from the dead. And it reminds me of a song. Um, no, what's the song that has all the actions from heaven to earth? He came from heaven to earth to show the way. Yes. From, from the earth to the cross, my debts to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Oh, Lord, we lift your name on high. Song from our high school days. But so, so we're, so, we know this. We're so familiar with this portion of the story that I, I think we forget to sit in it and be wowed by this moment. Jesus has been crucified. In today's terms, this would be like lethal injection or the electric chair if you were brought up in that age or a hanging, firing squad, that being beheaded. This is like capital punishment. Jesus is crucified. In fact, he takes the place of a murderer. Jesus is crucified, and people see it. This is somewhat of a spectacle. You and I, we would avoid this route just to not see the scene, right? Anybody? I'm not really interested in blood and gore. We would avoid this. No, these people did not avoid this. This was like part of their adventure. They, for whatever reason, had an attraction to death. So they see him. He's hanging there. He's unrecognizable as a man. His followers have become aware. He's breathed his last. And you can only imagine, you and I can only imagine what is just rushing through the minds of the disciples and his mother. What has just happened? This way wasn't supposed to go down like this. I would imagine that they lost hope at some point in these three days. Jesus is taken down from the cross and he is put into a tomb. He's wrapped up. They do all the things that they do. It's over. Jesus has died. To some, he was just a great teacher. To others, he was the Messiah. A long-awaited for Messiah. He's dead. Killed gruesomely. Placed in the tomb. And the events around all of it are just wild. Absolutely wild. You know, there's, there's an account on Instagram, and I can't remember what it's called. I'll, I'll share it with you later. Um, that, that is doing, like, Bible stories through, like, the AI developments. And it is wild, <laughs> absolutely wild. So they just insert the stories, and then this just program developed what it would have looked like. 
and and they're they're doing it with all of the different Bible stories, and and the the outcomes are just like beyond our imagination, especially the angels. Go and and check it out because the, the angels freaky. We like to make angels in our image, okay? <laughs> and this is not that. This is just things, let's say, with a whole, whole lot of eyeballs. <laughs> It's really, really bizarre stuff. Where was I going with that? I don't really know. Oh, all of the events around Jesus' death. We have an eclipse, right? There's an eclipse that it goes dark. It's it's middle of the day, and they're experiencing midnight darkness. What else happens? Earthshake! There's an earthquake. What happens after the earthquake? That was a whole lot. Yes, yes. The curtain, right? The curtain in the temple, which was the 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 thickness of a man's hand, right? From like finger to wrist. Is that right? Am I saying this right? I think that's what it is. That's thick. It is torn in half and falls. And this this is a big curtain. It is a big big deal. A big big deal. If you thought what Jesus did with whip was a big deal. <laughs> then we have graves open up and and grandma and grandpa are coming up out of their graves and walking around. This is barely a mention in our Bibles too. I'm like say more? <laughs> say, say more about that? Like where'd they go? What next? Did they just go and eat somewhere? Did they? I I I don't know where. Like where? Where did these people go when Jesus ascended? Did they like follow? I like I have questions. I I, I need to know. <laughs> I don't know if they I don't know if they determine those kind of outcomes. Um, but these are the things where I'm just like, why do we so? quickly move beyond these things and not sit in the space of wonder like wow and this this happens this happens at his death how much more remarkable is his resurrection jesus is dead he's been laid in a tomb three days later angels show up i know they've been depicted as men whatever i don't know what these guys look like Right? It's scary. No wonder they always had to say, like, you're not. <laughs> that would be creepy. Creepy. Um, and, and, and they enter into his tomb and the power of the Holy Spirit raises Jesus to life. This is huge! This is huge, and I think that because we don't have any tangible reference to this, it's really hard for us to stay in this place, right? We, we have stories, and we have our faith that, yes, this happens, but we don't have, like, a tangible reference. I saw it! The disciples did, you know? We know Mary comes. 
She's like, what have you done with my Lord? And they so were not expecting a resurrection. She was convinced someone stole his body. I'm getting in really deep with this story, and I didn't intend to, but I'm having fun. <laughs> so we know the rest of the time. So Jesus, he's resurrected, and he hangs out for how many days? 40 days. There's a lot of things in the Bible that happen in a 40-day time frame. What? It's true. There are. There's a lot of events that take place in a 40-day story. And so does Jesus. Jesus is walking around. He's walking through walls. He's just appearing places. Freaks out two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Walks with them. You guys, this is bizarre stuff. These fellows are just headed somewhere. And Jesus comes and walks alongside them. These are people who follow Jesus. And he just comes and he walks. Hey, fellas, what's talking about? And they have no idea. No idea that it's Jesus. What did he look like that they couldn't recognize him? I was, I think they would have been freaked out. But they had a conversation with him, and then he just disappeared. He's just gone. The disciples are arguing about whether or not Jesus is resurrected or not, and he just walks through the walls. There was a door. He wanted to make a point. Right. I know. Yeah. And, and, and to top it all off, he has wounds. <laughs> yes. He has holes in his body from nails. And invites them to stick their fingers in them. I mean, these are, these are weird, weird, weird. Okay, so maybe we should read. And as they were speaking these things, he himself stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were terrified and they became frightened and thought they beheld a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet? That that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you behold me having. So they're they're actually thinking, it's a ghost! Which, which I think is fair, that they would think that it's a ghost. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? And they handed him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that all the things written in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms concerning me must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's huge. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise up from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send forth the promise of my father upon you. But as for you, stay in the city until you put on power from on high. Luke writes it this way in his gospel and writes it a different way in Acts until power comes on you. But in the gospel, he tells them, until you put on power from on high, which is, I think, huge. It's a huge difference. There's a, a partnering that takes place between us as humans and God. We have to choose to put these things on. Could they have escaped what happened on Pentecost? Yes, I do think they can through disbelief. I think they could have completely disregarded what was happening and excluded themselves from what was transpiring. But here Jesus is telling them, power from on high is going to become available to you. Put it on. And then from here, Jesus just begins to rise upon clouds into the atmosphere and they stand and they watch with great awe with wonder I'm sure they're wonderstruck watching this man this God just rise we would be amiss not to look at the story of Elijah and Elisha what took place between the, the relationship that Elijah had with Elisha. Elisha wanted what Elijah had, right? And Elijah said, you can have it. Stay close enough. Follow tight enough that when I am taken, you see it. And you'll have a double portion of what I have. And that happens. And it's a little tricky for him. Because there's a chariot and a whirlwind. But he was only taken up by one. Elijah wasn't taken by a chariot. He was taken by a whirlwind. And the point that Elijah is making to Elijah is, Don't have eyes that are fixed on the fancy. See me. Watch me. Stay close. There are all kinds of things that are crowding in for our attention. What are you fixed on? Same thing happens for the disciples. Jesus says, power from on high is going to become available to you. I need you to put it on. 
What did Elisha have to do after watching him taken in the whirlwind? He had to grab the mantle and put it on. We have to do the same thing. We have to see him high and lifted up. And put on what it is that he's offering. It's more than just a meal at his table before our enemies. It's garments that we wear. It's a great trade-up. I take off my unrighteousness. I take off my filthy rags. We trade it up for what he's offering. Garments of praise. Robes of righteousness. That's my portion. We habitually play victim and keep ourselves away from his table like we used to. We fall into snares of sin because we don't have our eyes fixed on Jesus. We're fixated on whatever's going to comfort us in the next moment. But we have to become a people who are steadfast, who know without a doubt that God has a plan for us as a people. Taking our eyes off of us, this is part of the problem. Me has become Savior. And that's not okay. Individuality has become a savior complex. I don't need no one. Yes, you do. You're not going to make it very far on your own. You're going to trip. You're going to fall. And it'll be painful. I'm not saying you won't fall and you won't stumble on a company of people, but at least you're in a company of people who have your back, who know who you are. One of the big things right now in college sports is the NIL. I was, I was second-guessing myself. Well, I had it, and then I had to, like, double-check, and it wasn't last night. It was the night before. <laughs> Name, image, likeness. This is a new thing within college sports, basically asking college-age students, children, mind you, to sell themselves. Price on their head. It's an exchange. Their name, their image, their likeness for money. This is the struggle that we're in right now, is that we're so willing to exchange our name, our image, and our likeness for shiny things. Guys, this goes back to the beginning. This is exactly what happened in the beginning. In the garden. It was an exchange. Name image and likeness was stripped. 
from Adam and Eve is to know nothing but God. Absolutely nothing but God. Prior to this moment, they wanted to know who they were. They just looking for so they can look into his face and know who they were. If they needed to know what they were like, they just watched him. They didn't even know their own names. They were him. Until that moment. When they allowed the enemy to strip them of their name and image. Unfortunately, the church is playing catch-up on the regular. Rather than being the ones out front creating culture, we're trying to, to um, eliminate things that have already begun, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like we're constantly battling what the world has already created culture-wise because we're not doing our job. We're told to have dominion in the earth. We're also told that, 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 that Christ would come and that his peace and that his government would have no end. And isn't it sad that it's ending within his very church? That we are not running with the government of the kingdom and establishing culture the way he wants it? Instead, we're playing catch-up and we're trying to put out fires. We are playing the tail rather than the head, and we're called to be the head and not the This name, image, likeness thing, it's ours. It belongs in the it belongs to the church. It belongs to the kingdom of heaven. And look what's being done. Look, we're exploiting young girls. And honestly, it's tragic. And I'll be honest with you, and this doesn't really matter, but it's ruining sports. Hmm? Not in the grand scheme of things. I had this moment over Christmas with Lily. I walked upstairs. And there she is. Here, I'm just going to pull up a picture so you can have the same shock and awe that, that I, I had. It's important that, that you have the same shock and awe. This is what I walked into. Oh, my gosh. Show, show and tell time. Lily. Uh-huh. You guys saw it. Do you, you want to see it? Yep. You did? Okay. So she she left this on for probably close to an hour, I would think. It, she just, it was hilarious. She was spending time with Nana, and Nana's like, hey, try this way on. And Lily's like, okay. And, and then she had people walking upstairs just to see their reaction because she's Lily. And 
my my reaction to her was just kind of like I was stunned. And I just kept staring at her. I like I really I could not stop staring at her. It was somewhat of a phenomenon to me. And it took several minutes of staring at her before it finally clicked. It's the first time I saw my image from my daughter. She looks like me with a blonde wig on. And since then, there's been several experiments where they're looking at different pictures and look from the nose up. It's exactly Lily. And so everybody is like mind blown. Like, I never thought she looks like you. <laughs> no one gives me credit for Lily. <laughs> I'll show you the one of you in the same way. Those two look like twins. <laughs> my point in bringing this up isn't just to like show you pictures of my kid in a wig that looks like me. It's in this moment, I understood just an inkling, just an inkling, what it is that the father's looking at. When the father is looking at you and I, he's having this moment. Of like, you know, when Jesus is being lifted up, when he's ascending into the heavens, he's having this moment of looking down at them and going, "The image is in them," and he's like, "Just wait, because my likeness is coming too." already offered them his name. And now he's seeing him. It's totally different to want to look at Jesus and see ourselves. But when you're taking it from the perspective of the Savior looking at us and seeing his image in us, that begins to blow my mind that he cares. Who am I, David says? Who is, who, who is man that you are mindful of us? Who's me? You are mindful of us. Jesus is looking at us around the more obvious. Look at him. And that's still happening. He's drawing close to us to capture his image because it's what he's stolen from. And we know that he has already breathed the Spirit into this existence. And Luke tells us that their minds were open to understand the Scripture. So these, this group of people are suddenly experiencing things that they've not before. Like how many of you had that kind of encounter at salvation or be baptized in the Holy Spirit or suddenly like things were different? Even colors were different. Everything was different. It was as if the entire world had a new glow to it. They're experiencing everything new. Everything's changed and yet it's all the same.
Jesus is already told will stay together. Because what the Father has promised is not going to be alone. Not going to be alone. He tells them, it's better that I go and prepare a place for you because I hope is coming. One that you need. One that will fill you from the top of your head down to the toes on your feet. There won't be an ounce of you that can't feel this helpless. And they probably pray in ways that they've never heard. You've got to remember that these are all Jewish people who have been raised up appropriately. They have prayers memorized. And so for them to go off grid and start praying things just randomly, probably was new. I'm not saying that they didn't do it, but I am thinking they probably didn't so much do that as they just repeated things. So now they're like, they're, they're exploring this prayer stuff. Right? Who knows what they're praying? We don't have a record of it, but I like to And their prayers are probably charged. I think they're experiencing the holy energy together in that place. They have a corporate anointing to pray. And my guess is there's not like five minutes in between the next prayer. It's probably like they're praying over each other because there's so much just rising up on the inside of them. I just have to talk to God, so I'm just going to talk over you. But I would welcome that. Right? There's a place for order, and that's not disorder. Can you imagine? It must have been like a little bit of a roar. These prayers, Sound mind. Praying effective prayers. So, Father, right now, we're asking for the same eyes that are fixing on you, intimacy created between you and I, you and And a new understanding of scripture. Yeah, we're asking for a new understanding of scripture. God, turn on our understanding, a greater depth, that we would know you. We want to know you. And God, we are asking for a fervency in prayer. I don't know how you do that kind of thing, but we're asking for it. God, that when we're together, good luck trying to shut off our prayers. 
that when we're together, there is just a synergy that is released. Yes, we can't wait to communicate. God, I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for these stories that you've gifted us. God, that we have the testimony of who you are. Through Jesus and through your people and through the early church. Holy Spirit, we are asking for your fire to come on us once again. that we would become those well-lit torches. Oh, Jesus, let us light in that way. We want to be the head and not the tail. We want to make much of who you are. We want to magnify you, God. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. We want to see you. Help us to know the difference between shiny, distracting things. Increase our discernment. Amen.